What's up, everyone? Welcome back to the 60 Feet 6 Inches LSU podcast. As always, thank you for joining me. In this episode, I review LSU's series victory over a very good and scrappy Kentucky squad. I go over each of the three games. What were the three big things that I learned from the weekend? How did my get right, stay right list produce? And then finally, the SEC rundown. Also, make sure to stay tuned to the end of this podcast and this YouTube video as I am joined by a very special guest who I think a lot of LSU baseball fans will look forward to hearing from and who know very well. As always, you can find the 60 Feet 6 Inches LSU podcast on Apple, Google, Spotify, and all the other major audio platforms. If you are viewing this on the YouTube channel, please make sure to subscribe so don't miss out on any of the content throughout the season. And then finally, you can always follow me and interact with me on Twitter. The account is at 60FT6INLSUPod. If you missed the last episode, I previewed the Kentucky Wildcats. And as always, you can find that content in podcast form and then once again on the YouTube channel where everything is saved. So LSU wins the Thursday and Saturday game. This puts the Tigers at 29-6 and on the season, and they are currently 9-5 and in SEC play. Next weekend, LSU will hit the road as they travel to Oxford to take on the defending national champs, the Ole Miss Rebels, in a Friday, Saturday, Sunday series. So let's get into it. Thursday night, LSU wins the opener by way of 10-run rule, 16-6. On the mound, you saw the usual guy on Friday night. Excuse me, Thursday night. I apologize. I continue to do that. Paul Skeens, and he was just his usual self, right? Although just a little, he went, he went uh, about his business a little differently this weekend. Maybe not dominant in terms of fastball location, and his velocity may have been a tick down, meaning he dropped in velo a little earlier on than we've seen Skeens throughout the season. But on the night, Skeens goes six innings pitched, seven hits, five runs, four earned, one walk, which is always impressive by him, and once again, double-digit strikeouts as Skeens strikes out six, excuse me, 12 Wildcats. And while the fastball, the location was a little up, I tell you what, his slider was phenomenal on the night, and Kentucky had no chance against that slider. And you really saw him in the latter part of his outing go to majority sliders. I don't have the numbers on it. I wish I did, but I bet you he threw about 65% sliders on the night, which is something we just hadn't seen. But obviously him and Wes Johnson knew that the fastball was a little up in the zone. Kentucky got, uh, they may have got all their hits off of fastballs really. And so they decided, you know what? They can't hit the slider. I'm going to keep throwing it until they can prove that they can hit it. And they couldn't. One of the things I noticed is that Kentucky could hit. I knew they were a good team coming in, but really some guys in that order like Petrie, uh, Jackson Gray, the center fielder who made some nice plays. Gillum, uh, who hit the four or five hole spot. Those guys can really swing it. And they lived up to their stats and they lived up to their billing, but just wasn't enough to uh, get it done versus Paul Skeens. After Skeens, you saw Riley Cooper came in and he did two innings of relief work and he did his job. He gives up one run, but that's really about it. And in that situation, when you're up by that many runs, all he has to do is hold the fort down. And that's what Coop did. For the game, LSU was back up to that 66% strike mark. As we've talked about on the pod throughout the year, I'm really looking for them to stay in that 63 to 66 or plus, which would be phenomenal, percentage of strikes thrown throughout the game. And the LSU pitchers, Skeens and Cooper hit that mark on the night. Now, when you look at pitting, hitting, that was the absolute story of this game. As the Tigers score 14 runs in three innings, they throw up a six spot in the first, follow that up with a five spot. And they're not done because they come back with another three spot in the third, and they absolutely blitz Kentucky's pitching staff. And Kentucky tried to outsmart the room, right? They started a dude who hasn't started a game in like a year and a half due to injury, and he absolutely got hammered. 
And then from there, they kind of threw the lesser of their bullpen arms, deciding to save their bullets for the Friday and Saturday games. But Tommy White gets it going early with an RBI double. And then Jonathan Jordan Thompson follows it up with a grand slam in the first inning. Not to be outdone, Joe Bear hits a grand slam in the second. And then finally, the Creole Bambino himself, Cade Beloso, cranks a three-run home run in the third. LSU scores single runs in the seventh and the eighth as Malazzo walks it off with a single in the eighth for a 10-run rule victory. Get this. LSU scored 12 runs with two outs in this game, which is massive, right? We've talked about how LSU does a great job with two outs. And one of the gold-plated money stats that I mentioned in the preview podcast was that the Kentucky pitching staff was the best in the conference at not allowing teams to score with two outs. Well, LSU absolutely got it done on Thursday night in the opening game. I don't think anytime you could probably score more than five with two outs, that's impressive. But for them to score 12 out of their 16 runs with two outs is huge. That just shows the ability of this team to extend innings, not to give up at bats, when good things happen, like uh, I think I mentioned on Twitter, after a grand slam, you know, Thompson ends up taking a walk after that, or after that might have been Veloso's three on home run. I forget what it was, but the fact that after they scored runs, they still look to extend innings and they don't give up ABs is a great sign for this team moving forward. Now let's move on to the Friday game. LSU suffers the loss in this one by a score of 13 to 10, and it was really not a pretty game by any means. Once again, Ty Floyd, he stays in that number two spot as he started the game. And for the record, look, I've, I've kind of gone back and forth with whether or not I think he should stay in that game. I thought Griffin Herring may get a shot at starting this weekend, but then you kind of realize, as some other people pointed out on Twitter, and I was probably wrong about this, that Herring needs to stay in the bullpen because Nate Ackenhausen is still hurt, so they need another lefty down there uh, to help out with Raleigh Cooper. And they also need to extend Griffin Herring some more in terms of getting his pitch count up to the 60s, all the way up probably to the 80s, really, before Jay and Wes Johnson feel comfortable running him out there on a weekend. But I think um, Ty Floyd had a better outing, but he still ran into some trouble. And to be honest, this just may be Ty Floyd that we see until he kind of figures it out a little more like he did at the end of last year. And we just may see Ty Floyd do this the rest of the SEC play until he gets to regional or super regional time. Look, and that's fine with me. If you can keep going four or five innings and LSU gets the win, that's fine. But then in super regional, regional time, you're up to six or seven. You figure it out and you're dealing. I'm, I'm great with that too. But so on the year, I did some research, obviously. On the year, Floyd has a 181 batting average against, which is phenomenal. So he really doesn't get hit around a lot. It's more of the walks, the hit by pitches, the two out 02 hits or the 02 to a walk. Things like that that really derail his outings and get him going kind of in a bad streak to where he just can't figure out how to limit the damage or get his way out of it before giving up a run. On the day, Ty goes four and two-thirds innings, six hits, five runs, three earned, three walks, and two Ks. He does give up a two-run home run after LSU took the lead in the first, as we saw Tommy White drive home Dylan Cruz in the first, and then Morgan drive home two more in the second inning. LSU strikes again for three more in the fourth after Cruz smokes a, a double to right center. And then Tommy Tanks unloads with a massive home run to center field for a 6-2 to lead. And I was at the game, and I thought once Tanks hit that home run, it was a wrap. I really thought uh, Cruz is actually um, – excuse me. 
Floyd had gone the third and the fourth inning, three up, three down in both innings. So I thought he was really getting things on track and he was just going to kind of cruise, um, get through five, hopefully get into the sixth or through the sixth. And LSU was going to kind of tack on some more runs at that point. They really had it going with a six, two lead. You felt like you could see this thing getting out of control and maybe it ends up being 10 to four. But, um, Unfortunately, Kentucky wasn't having any of that. So in the fifth of game two, things start to unravel for LSU and Floyd. And then you see Griffin Herring come in. You have a two-out walk, then an 0-2 hit given up by Floyd. So it's those little things, like I mentioned previously. Herring comes in. Then you have, as soon as Griffin Herring comes in, you got the, look like a rocket. I was in the stands. Look like a rocket off of Tommy White's glove or his chest. And he's unable to make the play at third base to get out of the inning. And then after that, then you have the ball that Braden Bear overruns in right field, which is unfortunate because when I saw it off the bat, it looked like it was definitely heading towards the bullpen or that fence area, and he was busting it to get over to the line. He was swung a little more towards the right center gap, and he just, unfortunately for that young man, overruns it. Three runs score right there, and by the time that inning is finished, LSU is down 7-6. to six. Kentucky's not finished. They played five more runs in the seventh as Herring has a couple of walks, a bad throw on a bunt, a couple of hit-by-pitches. He leaves some balls up, and Kentucky makes him play with several singles that inning. And, you know, it was just not something we had seen from Griffin Herring yet. He's been very consistent. He's been throwing the ball very well. But, look, he's a freshman, and he's going to have these types of outings. It's part of the growing process, right? Gavin Guidry is going to have one of these outings. Chase Shores. You saw him have these outings as a starter. Unfortunately, he's still hurt. But if he was still in the bullpen, like they're going to have innings where they go two innings and give up four runs. It's just the nature of learning to pitch in the SEC on a consistent basis. Also, you got to remember, the scouting report is now out on these guys. So everybody knows what Griffin Herring throws. He's going to be 90 to 94 with a very good slider. He hasn't featured his change very much, and he's going to try to pound the zone. And unfortunately, he was just struggling a little bit with his fastball command. And look, I still have a lot of confidence in that young man. He's got a great future, but it was just it was just uh, a rough outing for him. And it is what it is. But look, LSU comes back late, but it's not enough. LSU scores three in the eighth, but UK closes it out to win 13 to 10. So on the flip side, Kentucky had five two-out RBIs, while LSU had zero compared to game one. And obviously the three errors that the Tigers committed hurt as well. So going into this Saturday game, the rubber match, LSU has got to win this series at home. You cannot drop a series at home, especially when you're the number one ranked team in the country. I know you're scuffling a little bit. you got some injuries you're dealing with. You just can't let that happen. But the Tigers dodge the raindrops. They come back from behind to take the rubber game. They beat the Wildcats 7-6. to six. So when you look at the Saturday game, the much-anticipated start of Christian Little for the first time we see him get the start in SEC play. We've seen him start some midweek games lately. He started Tuesday against Tulane. He threw 40 pitches in one inning. But the complete opposite, and I loved what I saw early on from Christian Little. He was fabulous for three innings. He was awesome. He did everything I would want him to do in three innings. Nine outs, nine up, nine down, no hits, no nothing. He was cruising. But in the fourth, unfortunately, it just comes unraveled as he just couldn't find the strike zone. He issues three walks in a row, and that ends his day. So Little goes three and a third, no hits. So fabulous outing. One run, one earned, three walks. That is the killer in 1K. 
I'd imagine if you told Jay Johnson before that game, he's going to go three innings and they're not going to touch him. They're going to put the ball in play. LSU's going to make the plays. He's like, I'll take it. But unfortunately, man, if he just could have gotten through the fourth, I would have considered it an A-plus outing. I still consider it a good step forward for him. And you just hope he gets a – I would imagine he's going to get a chance against Ole Miss, and you just hope to see him improve on that in that game three spot. Gavin Guidry follows Christian Little. And Guidry, just like Herring, had a little bit of control issues, and he, but he did what he was supposed to do, right? He kept the game tied. He didn't let it get out of hand. You know, he does uh, give up a run. But, um, you know, you saw him. He struggled with his command. He balances a lot of sliders, so he had to bring the slider up in the zone. You know, he had a couple wild pitches on the day as well as Malazzo did the best he could to balance that slider. But then following Gavin Guidry, you had Thatcher Hurd. So he came in from the pin, and we've seen him do that lately. And it was a struggle again for Hurd, really just leaving his fastball up in the zone. Now, I thought his fastball velocity looked great. He was back to 93-96. But unfortunately, Hurd gives up three runs in the seventh. And I'm thinking, man, we need this game. We're down. What's LSU going to do about it? Sticking with that pitcher theme, though, the hero of the day really was Bryce Collins. Collins, he looked very confident. You've seen him come on lately. And and I feel like he's turning the corner to where he's getting back to that 2022 form. And I would almost say he's fully turned the corner. Maybe one more good outing. And I'll be convinced that he is back to where he's supposed to be. On the day, Collins, he shuts that thing down. Two and a third innings, one hit, one walk, four massive Ks for Collins. As he put up zeros in the eighth and the ninth, relying almost exclusively on that big overhand curveball. And Kentucky just couldn't hit it. He gave up one hit in the ninth on like a 2-2 curveball. He left it up in the zone. It was a single. But he comes right back. He kills that momentum. And he gets the next hitter out. A fabulous job by Collins and a big victory for the Tigers. Now, when you look at the hitters for game three, Jared Jones was the star of the day as he hits two solo home runs, massive blast. And on the second one, he dang right. He let Kentucky's pitcher know about it. Now, a brief side note. Some people are going to say, obviously, TV caught everything of what he said. And in this day and age, TV catches everything, right? There's so many cameras. they're They're on your face every time something big happens. A lot of people in my timeline said that was classless. And I'm just going to tell you right now, I don't care. He's a college kid. We have no idea what went on previously in that series. You have no idea what is being said between those players, between those pitchers and hitters. If the catcher's talking smack, nobody knows. So I talked a ton of smack in my day. Thank goodness they didn't have cameras watching me because I said everything that Jared Jones said. I'll own it 100%. So I have no problem with it. Look. If you think it's classless, that's fine. But listen, if you think that's classless, you better think Angel Reese is classless. You better think every DB celebration, all those dudes putting locks in and swords in, that's classless. Every football sack celebration is classless. All that, um, any type of trash talking is classless, okay? So I have no problem with what Jared Jones did. My only thing is, if you're going to give it, he better be ready to take it. So, Next time he strikes out against Kentucky, if it would have come to that situation and that pitcher stares him down and tells him to go get back in the dugout using choice words, then he better be prepared to take it. And the LSU dugout better be prepared to take it because if you're going to give it, that's fine. Just be ready to get it back. So I don't think it's classes. They're kids. They're playing with emotion. It's college baseball. Uh, get over it. That's all I got to say. So there's my uh, soapbox. 
Anyway, Jerry Jones, stud. Especially when you – God, the freshman in the SEC, when you look at Petri, and then probably a lot of y'all don't know about Charlie Condon from Georgia, who's going nuts, and then Jerry Jones. Phenomenal year for freshman hitters in the SEC. So the game is 6-4 to four, Kentucky, hitting in, heading into the bottom of the seventh. Morgan leads off with a single. Cruz and White, bang, bang, get outs. And I'm like, man, they may have lost their chance to take the lead right there. But with two outs, LSU does it again as Thompson rips a double down the left field line to score Morgan. Not to be outdone, the Creole Bambino, yes, sir, Cade Beloso, rips the single to right to score Thompson. And just like that, LSU ties it up in the eighth. Regardless of what y'all say about Braden Joe Bear defensively, I'm going to right up here stand up for this guy. A lot of y'all probably don't remember. You just think about the three runs he gave up overrunning that pop fly. Joe Bear leads the eighth off with a, a piss rod to right field. He smokes a single to right field. He eventually comes around to steal second because Napolt cannot get the bunt down. So bad on Napolt right there. Malazzo, a massive 3-2 walk. Morgan pops up. And then they intentionally walk Cruz to load the bases. So they're playing with fire, right? They show a ton of respect to Cruz throughout the weekend. Tommy White has already burned them. And once again, Tommy White burns them. But this time the pitcher helps him out. The pitcher throws the first pitch into his hip. Tommy White gladly takes his walk to first. The run scores. LSU takes the lead. And then Collins kills it off in the ninth. On the day, the Tigers had four two-out RBIs. Unfortunately, though, they leave 10 runners on base. But as you've seen time and time again, LSU is able to have enough grit, determination. They don't quit. They come back and win another game coming from behind. A massive stat. Shout out to Ronnie Rance, former Tiger pitcher on the broadcast. As he said, Kentucky in game three, they scored every inning that the leadoff runner got on base. And I was charting it myself. It was like clockwork. You almost never seen anything like it. Every time the leadoff runner didn't get on, they didn't score. But leadoff runner on, whether it was walk or a hit, they found a way to get that guy around and put up a number in the score column for the Wildcats. But in the end, LSU gets it done. Braden Bear, as long as he, as a buddy of mine said to me on Twitter, as long as he drives in more runs than he gives up, I'm fine with it. And I'm not going to get into it, but there's just a lot of different ways that conversation can go right now in the outfield. Because if you're going to take out Joe Bear and put in Pearson, then you're losing a bat somewhere. If you move Morgan back to first and you want Pearson and Joe Bear both in the outfield, right? Morgan back at first. Who are you dropping? You dropping Jones? You dropping Beloso? Because those guys are on fire right now. So you're just going to have to make a decision. I'm not going to get into that right now. But, you know, if you look at the numbers, Joe Bear, look, Pearson's better than him in the outfield, but I'm keeping Joe Bear's bat in the lineup at this time. All right, quickly, I want to review my keys to the weekend, and then we'll get into the three big things that I learned from the weekend. On the preview episode, the keys to the weekend, one was defense and catching. Game one and two, the defense was not good. And you could really say it cost you game two. But in the end, in game three, LSU's error streak ends, and they finally put a zero in that E column. But something that is worth watching, while LSU still has a good fielding percentage overall, so the totality of every game, they're fielding at a 980 clip, which is still going to be top probably 10 or 15 in the country. If you look at their fielding percentage strictly in SEC play, it is at 972. That is 10th in the league. That is not good. 972 fielding percentage in SEC games. 
And the reason why I focus on that, listen, the regionals and super regionals, and hopefully LSU gets to Omaha, you're going to be playing SEC comp type or SEC level competition. So those guys need to pick it up when it comes to fielding. And you can really say it cost them a game when you look at the Friday game. Another key to the weekend, throw more strikes, eliminate the free passes. They did not do that after game one. Skeens is Skeens. He doesn't walk anybody. But in game two, LSU's pitchers had five walks and only four strikeouts. In game three, LSU's pitchers gave away eight free passes, and they only struck out nine. And the reason why they struck out nine is because Collins saved him by striking out four in his two and a third innings pitched. So not a good trend that they have going on. And you see a lot of four-pitch walks. Those are a killer Look, in college baseball, even though these hitters are very good right now, the best thing you can do is just throw the ball down the middle. you got to remember, even if you're a good hitter, somebody who's hitting 370, that means 63% of the time they're going to get themselves out. Push comes to shove, throw the dang thing down the middle, and let whatever happens, happen. The last key of the weekend, have a greater sense of urgency. Finish off innings for these LSU hitters. And you definitely saw that at the beginning of game one as they scored 14 runs in the first three innings. But then they relaxed a little bit. You know, they're college kids. They kind of let the innings pass. They didn't tack on more runs to really get that 10-run rule right in the seventh, and it really would have helped. But um, they pulled away at the end. Also, in the other games, they um, they scored runs, and they got it done in other areas. In game three, you saw them score six out of eight innings, so you can't complain about that. And they put up 10 runs in game two. So all in all, I mean, this team, they scored in 16 out of 25 of the innings played in which they could have hit, right? So LSU hit in 25 innings. They scored in 16 of them. I think that's good for 62%. I will take that every day and twice on Sunday. All right, what are the three big things I learned from this weekend? One, LSU can flat out hit. Look, nobody's shocked by that statement or surprised by that, and everybody's saying, no crap, Chris. We know they can hit. But when you see it on display week in and week out against the arms they faced in the SEC, they are a true pitcher's nightmare. And I think my special guest is going to be able to attribute to that or uh, to lend some credibility to that statement when y'all stay and y'all hear my who my special guest is. And look, the other thing I mentioned is they just don't quit. They never think they're out of a game, and the ability for them to come back is truly impressive. As I mentioned, they scored in 16 out of 25 innings, 62%. That is awesome. LSU scored 33 runs this weekend versus the Kentucky pitching staff that was second in the SEC and Team ERA and top 10 in the country in Team ERA heading into Baton Rouge. Let me say that again. 33 runs against a top 10 ERA team, top 10 pitching staff in the country, and they actually pummeled those guys in every game. LSU, in SEC games only, they have the second-best batting average behind Vanderbilt. Now, this is after the Saturday games. I'm not counting Sunday games. LSU is second in the SEC, in SEC games only, in on-base percentage, in doubles, and in RBIs. And as a team, the hitters for LSU have the fourth-fewest strikeouts in SEC play. So these guys can rake, and they are continuing to do it against what, four top 25 teams in a row. So as much as we whine or groan about the hitters sometimes, I think you have to realize they're easily one of the top five offenses in the country. 
The second big thing that I learned this weekend, there are still pitching concerns, and hopefully my special guests can talk to that as well. They are still a very real problem, and they are a concern moving forward. Skeens, I'm not really worried about till he shows me otherwise. But the Game 2 and Game 3 starters continue to remain an issue, although it's better at times this weekend. Floyd goes four and two-thirds, but he's still fighting himself a little bit, I feel like. Then Little, he looked great, as I mentioned, for three innings pitch, exactly what you wanted from him. But then he has that fourth inning to where he really struggles with his command. The pin depth. Herring has been great, but he's still a freshman. Gidry's been great, but he's still a freshman. Hurd has struggled out the pin a little bit. But as uh, wishy-washy as, uh, as those guys' past outings were this weekend, you're seeing Cooper and Collins turn the corner and return to that 2022 form. And I'm starting to feel really good about what those vets are bringing to the table. Unfortunately, the bullpen ERA this weekend was 7.50, which is not going to cut it. The team ERA was 2.42 before conference play, and it is now 4.18. I know you're playing much better teams, but that is a massive jump in five weekends. Another thing to think about, in SEC play only, LSU has the worst team ERA when you look at teams with a winning record. Let me say that again. LSU's pitching staff in SEC games has the worst team ERA when you look at winning teams only. Not great. And that is a 6.27 ERA. To me, that says something. But they still have the second most strikeouts as a staff in SEC play. I'm just thinking long term, that's just not a recipe for success when you get into Super Regionals and hopefully Omaha. We also help hope the health of the staff returns by then so they have a few more arms available. Then finally, the third big thing that I learned from this weekend. One is that the schedule is definitely about to lighten up. LSU, the remaining SEC series are at Ole Miss, home to Bama and Mississippi State, at Georgia, and at Auburn. Besides Ole Miss, Auburn and Georgia aren't really hostile away environments. Their fans and their students don't really get on you as much as Ole Miss will. I definitely think LSU should be able to take two out of three games and have a chance to sweep one or two of those teams moving forward. On the other hand, Arkansas has a very tough remaining schedule with A&M, South Carolina, and Vandy still left. And then you look at the SEC East, and those guys are just going to beat up on each other the rest of the way. So Vandy, South Carolina, Kentucky, I know Tennessee's scuffling, but they're still very talented. They all have to play each other. Lastly, another reason that I think LSU fans should relax right now is there is not one single team in college baseball that is complete in all three phases. Some people could say Wake Forest, and they do have, look, the best pitching staff in the country. There's no doubt about that. But I think their schedule and their conference is not nearly as tough as the SEC. And Wake does have a very good offense, but I don't feel like it is as potent as LSU's offense, especially when you look at the amount of runs they've scored in ACC play. Then finally, every top-ranked team has flaws. Look, Virginia just lost a home series to Pitt. Oklahoma State lost a home series to West Virginia. Florida lost a Friday night game to Georgia and struggled in the Saturday series. Tennessee just got swept by Arkansas. So they have other teams throughout the country that are very good, that are struggling. So even though LSU is going to scuffle some bit as they learn to uh, get through the pressures of SEC play with this young team, All in all, Tiger fans, we should just relax 
and realize that Jay Johnson and those guys are going to, or they are going to figure it out. And once everybody gets healthy, we're really going to get a good look and see what this LSU team looks like moving forward. All right, guys, I told y'all I had a special guest and that I do. So if you know LSU baseball, you definitely know this guy, my friend, my teammate, the winning pitcher in the 1997 College World Series championship game. You can find him on all of the, the majority of the radio broadcast for LSU games, none other than Doug Thompson. Dougie, what's up, brother? How are you doing, my man? My dude, so good to be here. I'm fired up to, uh, to join the podcast finally. No, no, it's, it's been uh, to, the, to the listening audience or viewing audience, as they can find this on YouTube, it's been a minute, but I'm going to let everybody know this dude is crazy busy. He's got kids galore. So not only does he do the home games, right, he's, he does Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and he's got to work in like a turn, travel tournament schedule. So <laughs> trying oh, to – yeah, yeah. Blessed so, uh, and stress. You know the deal. You've uh, a lot of people run the gamut, and uh, it's a lot of fun to try to keep up with it all. No, no, no. I appreciate it, Tom, bro. And um, I know the people who catch this are going to appreciate your insight. So let's let's get going here. Don't want to take up too much of Dougie's time, but obviously LSU sits at nine and five in the conference, so halfway through the SEC slate right here. So. How do you feel about that? Are you good with that? Do you think that's where they should be disappointed? You know, just your take uh, on the SEC season so far up to this point. Well, I, you know, I think it's good. I mean, you're right there at the top of the of the division. And, and the good news about that division is, you know, I think four teams have losing records in the conference. So uh, you got a chance to win your division, which is where you want to be. Uh, I'm sure you feel like maybe one or two slipped through your fingers. Uh, but listen, I mean, like that was a gamut and, and, and they all are right. Kentucky, when we talked about the beginning of the season, you know, when, when it first started, we, we really didn't talk much about Kentucky. We talked about the first four series, yeah. but then lo and behold, Kentucky uh, is the third team, you know, the fifth team we play and they're ranked in the top 10 as well. So, and, and, and nothing's changed. I mean, the SEC being strong in baseball is as old as time itself. Uh, this, it's, it was the same way when you're not played there. And, um, it seemed like every week was a top 10, top 10 team. Um, but look, I mean, to come away with the, the win in the series this weekend was big, uh, to either win or split all the series. I don't know that you can ask for much more than that. Yeah. It'd be great to sweep one or two here, there, but, uh, you've not yet lost a series. So I think that's important. Um, and look, you know, some injuries have, have kicked in lately. I know you're going to ask some questions about that, but, Right now, I think that everything considered, you got to be pretty pleased with where you are considering who you've played. No, I agree 100%. And like you said, I, I definitely – I did the preview shows and I had a Kentucky. I thought they were going to suck this year, to be honest, and I was completely wrong. Yeah. And and you saw it firsthand, but um, we won't go down to Kentucky. But them dudes, some of those dudes can flat out play. Like those well, let me dudes tell you, can swing Maru, it, man. Uh, you know, lots of good teams in the league, and we've seen a couple good ones so far. But, man, I, while it, it, it irks me as a pitcher, the dink and dunk and the bunts with two strikes and two outs, and uh, they're, they're effective at it. And they were very, very tough to beat. I'm telling you, um, you know, jumping out Friday night with Skeens was huge uh, because that was not, as, as we all saw, uh, 25 home runs or not, just because they don't hit the long ball does not make them a team that's very dangerous uh, when you get to the postseason, because they just scratch and claw to to win, 
and uh, they're pesky. Keep your eye on them in the postseason. No, no doubt. I think especially with the way Tennessee is floundering as they get swept by Arkansas this weekend. I don't know if you know, you may not have heard, but they're struggling. No, they're talented, actually, but they're no, struggling. I really you know? don't know what ended up happening. Uh, I've been at the, you know, the, the Little <laughs> League parks all day, so I'm not really sure how the SEC did wrap up. So Vandy takes two out of three at home from South Carolina. Florida loses Friday night, as you know. You report right. on all the scores. And they scratch Saturday and barely win Saturday. So Florida takes two out of three at home. But then Arkansas sweeps Tennessee. I think I just saw a tweet before we came on. They think they scored seven runs in three games. What's Tennessee now, three and eight? I think they're five. and I think I saw five and ten. Five and ten. Wow. Yeah. Oh, yeah, we're so, at 15. Right, right, right. Yeah. So, I mean, you touched on his name real quick. You saw – you've seen Skeens – Every home outing, obviously, you know, you, you you get to talk to the coaching staff. And he was massive. He's been massive all year. Obviously, on Thursday night, he does what he does, right? Double-digit strikeouts. But it was maybe a little of a rougher outing than we've seen from Skeen so far. Would it? And I, I'm not going to say he didn't have his best stuff. Like, I don't think he has best fastball location. Like, his slider was disgusting. He's still K-12, and I bet 11 of them from sliders. What did you make of Skeen's outing on Thursday and then, you know, kind of what you saw from him in South Carolina, just, you know, just schemes in general on uh, against Kentucky. Wasn't it 13 strikeouts? Maybe so, yeah. Around there, right? It was over. You know, I, I'll tell you, Moo, and I, I don't know if you're the same way. <laughs> you and I were on some teams that scored a lot of runs. But I, I can I can remember, you know, the, the guys getting the fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth run across the plate, certain innings, being like, all right, all right, guys, like that's enough. Like, <laughs> I want to go back out there because I want to. I want to. You know, it, it's it's different, right? It's a different mentality. Like, for example, in a two to one game, when I throw a curveball in the first pitch and I miss for the ball, big deal, right? Like, I'm just going to come back with it or get ahead with the next pitch. But when it's twelve to one or you got yeah. a big ten run lead, you throw that slider over. First of all, you're even reluctant, even if you're Paul Skeens with a 100-mile-an-hour fastball, you're still reluctant to throw the slider over for strike one. But that was the game plan, right? Like, you were dialed in to get ahead with breaking pitches of certain batters. So everything kind of changes. And I think for a minute there, they tried to go, you know, hard to the fastballs and went mm-hmm. back to what they were going to do. I think I think since Tennessee or South Carolina, we're going to see Skeens start off with that slider more. I mean, because when he does that, it's a strike. I mean – Good luck, you know, the rest of the at-bat. Um, and, and because some of these teams are getting up there just sitting dead red and trying to get the barrel on that fastball and kind of, you know, they've read the scouting reports. So I feel like I don't know that he's relying on his slider as much. Like he's still pumping 98 miles an hour, right? Like 98, 99. <laughs> right. Uh, he touched 100 a couple times. Um, but I, I think that he's more like using it more early in the count. Yeah. So, um no, I agree right uh, there. Sorry, my yeah, phone. Yeah. Um, You're good. You're it, good. Dude, it doesn't matter. I mean, this guy's at 100-plus strikeouts. I think he still hadn't walked double digits yet. I mean, it, no, it's no. truthfully no, unlike no. anything we've ever seen. I mean, I want to say he's right under 18 strikeouts per nine innings, which is just unheard of. So, um, But thank goodness for Paul Skeens right now because he really does give you a chance at that one W on the weekend. Uh, because right now, you know, the, the pitching staff is trying to re-identify with the big injuries. Yeah, and that leads us right into our next point. Um, moving on to the number two starter in the rotation, obviously with Ty Floyd. I think he's got fantastic stuff, but it's just – obviously there's a talk around the LSU fan base. You see it on social media, just some inconsistencies. And yeah. 
I've kind of learned that it looks like Jay's just going to stick with him and he's, and he's doing his job to an extent. Obviously he's given LSU a shot, which is what you can ask for. But I think from a number two spot, you may want to see a little something else. So when I say type Floyd, you saw him come on at the end of last year, but what have you seen from him? Obviously you got a great vantage point just with regards to some of his inconsistencies and just why he hasn't been maybe as dominant as his stuff suggests that he should be up to this point. Well, I feel like he, he really gets away with a lot because his stuff's so good. I mean, I think you said earlier, opponents still hitting under 200 off of him. Yeah. Uh, He's got a good strikeout to walk ratio. What is that? Do you have that right in front of you? No, I think it's somewhere around. Um, he's a little bit over an inning, but he's still. He's got. I think he's creeping up around seventeen. So he's maybe like around seventeen walks. I think now, so fourteen to seventeen walks. So his walks are kind of starting to creep up there. And how many strikeouts? I think he's around forty-ish. I don't have that right in front of me though. Yeah. yeah so when you get to the you know two and a half to one, you can still win, but it's just going to be tough sledding, right? I mean, and he's got the stuff to be more of a three and a half, four to one guy. I think. I mean, yeah. At this level, I, I feel like it's a little bit fastball command. I feel like he really doesn't uh, pitch off the corners very well, and, and or, or right now he's not, I should say, but. Like, that's the difference between Ty Floyd being our number two. Uh, if, if, he, if he were able to locate that fastball or even his breaking ball early in a count for a strike, we're talking about him, you know, being the Friday guy for nine, ten teams in the SEC. Yeah. But I think that's kind of the problem. It's that precision command that you see those front-of-the-line starters have. Yeah, and I, I mean, you've seen glimpses of it, especially with his secondary stuff. You know, I saw it in the fall and the spring, and – You've seen it at times, you know, he's got a, he's all of a sudden a changeups emerge. He just hasn't been able to locate that breaking ball, whether it be a curveball or slider for a strike. And I agree. It's just kind of, and almost like he's his own worst enemy at times, right? Two out walks, O2 hits, things like that to where he gets into trouble. And then he, all of a sudden there's one or two runs across and he just can't, can't really kind of get out of it. You know, yeah, like to me, to be a, to be a dominant college pitcher, you have to be able to throw that fastball, first of all, down the middle whenever you want, right? I mean, when it's 2-0-3. But then you also have to be able to throw it on that outer side of the plate, outer corner, a large majority of the time. But the, the breaking ball thing, like, I, I think I think there's – you can't just have a good breaking ball, right? Like, you have to be able to throw that breaking ball for a strike, and then you have to be able to bounce it at will, not by accident. Right. Like to me, that's when if you have those things where you can throw a fastball down the middle all day, you can you can hit that outer corner a lot, seven, eight out of 10 times. Right. In a bullpen session. But to me, like to be really and and fill in the blank for curveball. It it could be change up. It could be slider, whatever. But that off speed second pitch. I don't really think you have to have three, four. I see all these guys every week. I mean, it's like they have four or five pitches. I'm like. You don't need four or five pitches. <laughs> right. Like, especially out of the bullpen. My goodness, you don't have time for four or five pitches. Like, just in, in, if they – look, we have some rare breeds offensively on this LSU team. And when I say that, I mean – here's what I mean. Still talking about pitching. If guys could hit the fastball away, they wouldn't be in college. We have some guys that stay on it better than anyone, perhaps, that we've ever seen here, starting with Cruz, of course. And then, you know – uh, Tommy White has hit more balls into that right center gap and over the right field fence than he has the left field gap and left field yeah. fence, I think, right? right? And that's just because he, he hits that ball away so well. Probably shouldn't be in college, right? Neither should Dylan Cruz. So the thing is, like, 
when you think about how to defend that, because there's just not many guys like that, if you can throw a fastball away and a breaking ball or change up or fill in the blank off speed for a strike when you want to, and then bounce it in that one, two, oh, two, or maybe even two, two count, yeah. you can be dominant. And, and, and talking about Ty Floyd, it's not the stuff. I mean, he's got a, a, as dominant as you want fastball and he's got a really nice breaking ball. But he's got to be able to throw it over for a strike when he wants and bounce it when he wants. No, I agree 100%. I think I mentioned before you came on that, you know, like we learned with Coach Bertman, right? If you're if, even the good hitters who hit 370, Tommy White or Jared Jones right now. So, I mean, 63% of the time, you can just throw that sucker right down. That's what I said on the before you got on. It's 3 0. Two, just throw it down the middle. And more yeah. often than not, they're gun, they're still in college for they're gonna roll Cruz rolls over. Like yeah. now he didn't have five hundred, <laughs> but he's still gonna roll over on balls, you know. You so. know, Moo, I will say though, to those guys' credit, um, I remember Coach Burtman vividly telling us that, but then I remember how hard it was to really trust that <laughs> being out there on the mound in front of eight thousand people. Look, just it's only Lance Burtman. Just trust it, throw it down the middle here. Um <laughs> Seemed like that never worked out very good, but I, I get what you're saying. Yeah, the odds are always in the pitcher's favor. And, and and I'll tell you, you know, there's a billion stats available at the end of every game. I mean, like the comparisons and all the stuff that I'm privy to, and, and everybody is if, if you go to stat broadcast. And the one that seems like every time when you look at the game, it's the percentage of strikes. Oh, dude, I've been crushing that on the pod this year. I, don't, yeah. I didn't set – ladies and gentlemen, I did not set Doug up for that. So I've noticed. Yeah, and I did not hear that from you six, on the pod. Um, or in the but, green room. We didn't talk about that previous, right? <laughs> no, we didn't. But it's true. Like, man, the team that has that, you know, 65 70% strikes. That's and the it, other brother. Team has 73% strikes. Seems like that team always wins the game. Certainly yeah. – uh, when you boil it down to free passes, right? Like walks. I mean, once you start getting to five and six walks in a game, it, you know, it seems just unravel. Uh, and, and that is something that, that Skip Bertman and, and every pitching coach you ever have. I mean, the free passes just kill you at any level, uh, but certainly at the box. And certainly when you have a lineup like this one or 2009 or, or 2000 or 1997, 1996, you know, uh, <laughs> when you have a lineup like that, right. Uh, it's really tough to, to come in and, and walk the house. Now, and let's stay on that pitch in front just for one or two more questions. And obviously we'll stick with the starters right here. And I wanted to see how little performed. He finally got his kind of much anticipated sec start. We've seen him start in the midweek just to get some work in. And obviously the, uh, his start at South Carolina got rained out. Game three, Christian Little goes out there, and he does exactly what you want him to do. The first three innings, he's he's not striking everybody out. He's having quick, efficient innings. They're hitting the ball in the air, and then the fourth inning, it just kind of unravels like we've talked about with walks and stuff. One, what did you make of his outing? But two, what do you think his role is going to be moving forward with this team? Well, I didn't see his outing. You just told ah, me uh, uh, all about it. Uh, what was his pitch count going into the fourth inning? Uh, dude, it was, I apologize about that. It was probably around 35. He was efficient, man. He was rolling through quick. It was like pop-up, pop-up, ground out, not deep counts. And then he comes out in the fourth and it's three walks. He literally, he throws eight balls in a row. He can't find the zone. It's like eight balls in a row, gets an out and three walks. And he's, he comes out and Gavin Gidry comes in after him. But his first three innings were as good as you wanted. You know, you couldn't draw it up any better. Yeah. Know? I mean, I've been there. <laughs> 
So have I. <laughs> and, 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 you know, even back then when you're, you know, you were on the bus and Big Daddy, what happened? Like, it, it's just, I don't know. I just suddenly I felt like the mound was five feet further back or um, I had a blister or, you know, whatever. Right. Like you never really know when a guy just kind of loses it out there, what the deal is. And sometimes there just is no answer. It's like, I just yeah. can't throw a strike right now. I remember I used to be real bad about that with like just a random batter, you know, I'd be doing fine through four or five innings and, you know, just start off the sixth inning. And I would throw four pitches like up against the backstop, like not even close uh, ball four. And, and every now and then it was just weird um, that that happens sometimes, but, um, so, you know, it's just part of baseball, right? The pitchers, uh, sometimes they're going good for nine innings. Sometimes they go good for the first inning. Uh, sometimes kind of like Ty Floyd, you know, it's bumpy at first, uh, and, and they settle in and get better through that middle part of the game. And even, yeah. uh, you know, the special ones are the ones that get stronger and stronger as the game goes on. And I, I think Paul Skeen showed us that again, uh, you know, with his hundredth pitch of the night being a hundred miles an hour. No doubt. And and really quick, obviously, let's talk on the bullpen very quickly. We've seen some freshmen emerge, such as Griffin Herring, and then Gavin Gidry's got thrown into the mix because obviously we don't know what's going to happen with Shores, Edwards. But you see Cooper and Collins. To me, I just keep saying it feels like they're turning the corner back to 2022 as those guys scuffled early on. Just uh, if you want to touch on a couple guys, great. Just your overall feeling about the bullpen because it feels like it just gets thinner and thinner every weekend and luckily fingers crossed no injuries out the pen this week obviously we saw Gavin Dugas go down but you saw your thoughts on the bullpen and kind of how those guys have looked uh up to this point man I feel like the Garrett Edwards loss is huge I mean we were really it was starting to shape up and kind of identify itself with him as the closer and you know um and, and now we're kind of scuffling for this Sunday starter role so my answer is I'm, I, I'm glad I'm not Jay Johnson and Wes Johnson because, right. I, you know, it does. It seems thin, but guys are going to have to produce with their opportunities like Bryce Collins, like Riley Cooper, like Sam Dutton, like Herring, um, and, 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 of course, uh, Gavin Guidry. Um, guys are just going to have to start when they get their chance, their opportunity, Blake Money. They're going to have to go out there and get the job done. Uh, it's just that simple and and you know how that goes, right? Like, I mean, um, and and then you get to a certain point as a coach where they get X amount of opportunities and you don't feel comfortable with them or that you don't feel like they feel comfortable and you just have to kind of move on and really start to get the guys that you feel are going to be in the mix, the innings. And we're coming down, not quite the home stretch yet. I like to call the home stretch like the last two weekends, three weekends of the season. Uh, but right here at the midway point, there's a lot of time for, for this coaching staff to, to figure it out now. Uh, who's going to be the guy out of the pen? What's Javen Coleman going to do? Uh, yeah. What's he going to be? Is he going to start? Uh, hopefully he gets a chance to do that on Tuesday night. Uh, but, man, could they use that right now? I mean, that would be uh, a big, good time for that kid to come back and be who he was, right? But one of the problems is – um, that it's now like we need him to be our Sunday starter and grab five or six innings <laughs> for us and get 90 pitches in and strike out 10 and give yeah. up two hits and one run. We need him to do that now, 
And, <laughs> you know, but unfortunately, of course, he's going to have to go two innings and then the next time three innings and the next time four. Innings. But I've heard yeah. some great things about, you know, his last live, uh, his last live session against batters. He threw very well. He threw hard uh, and he threw about 30 pitches with with no pain. You know, so um, all good signs because they need it right now. They need they need an extra little boost to get to give a little bit more depth. Uh, to a pitching staff that really has, uh, if you think about the new kid, right, the freshman that got hurt before the season even started, like, Jayden, yeah, yeah, we don't really talk about him, but that kid was throwing at 95, 97 miles an hour in their inner squad games. Like, he was going to get a look for sure, <laughs> um, right? But him being gone, then you lose Grant Taylor before yeah. the season even starts. It's just like, um, this was a, this was, set, it is still set up to be, a championship caliber type team. Um, but, but now some guys that perhaps uh, didn't know if they were going to fall into that role are going to have to kind of like, uh, you know, Warren Morris did, or remember Trey Hodges. That's a great uh, right. example. Although Trey was coming off an injury, it's not like he was just, you know, ho humming in the bullpen the whole year. They got pitched in the big leagues, but they're going to, like Javen Coleman needs to be that Trey Hodges to, to the 2000 staff. That's what needs to happen right now. That's a great um, – there you go. You heard it here first. So if Javen Coleman is in the Super Regionals cutting up, you know, who, Campbell, whoever it may be. Whatever. Doug Thompson called it here first. So um, – and one of the reasons why I think this uh, team is set up to be a championship team is this lineup. Obviously, we faced a hell of a lineup while we were um, – in our time at LSU, and we had to go against those guys in inner squad. But, Doug, look, LSU scores 33 runs this weekend. They're top two or three in the country in scoring. And you look, I look today at the stats. Everybody's hitting over 300 except yeah. for Jordan Thompson. He's hitting 299. So we'll round yes. him up. But like Beloso, all those guys, Joe Bear, oh. everybody's hitting. Yeah. So just talk a little about when you see these guys up close and personal around the cages or what you've seen from them up until this point, just the talent and the depth of this lineup. I mean, it's, I see you smiling. It's scary when I think about trying to pitch against these guys, but the talent that Jay has at his disposal right now you know, and, and, and just how good they really are. Well, it's reminiscent, uh, honestly. Like, uh, <laughs> but I will say, um, I thought we were big, like, and everybody in the country thought LSU were, were monsters. And, I mean, honestly, we weren't small. I mean, every guy in our starting lineup weighed over 200 pounds, really, in 1997. These guys are massive. <laughs> like, uh, Jared Jones is, is a, just a massive human being. Um, they're all big kids, right? So that's the first thing that you notice is like, my goodness. Um, but man, they, they, they have a lot of belief, right? And, and, and hitting is contagious and, and success is contagious and confidence is contagious. Uh, swagger is contagious. And they have those things like, uh, like those teams that we played on. Uh, you just never really felt like you were going to lose the game, no matter if you gave up the inevitable two or the inevitable six, um, you really always felt like our guys were going to score more runs than their guys. And they have this same kind of vibe uh, uh, throughout this lineup. And they, they, Jay's got them really locked in up there, man. They walk a lot. They get hit by a lot of pitches. Uh, and, and they really have great two-strike approaches. I mean, uh, one through nine, I mean, they, they'll roll out some lineups out there that I do not envy. Uh, you know, when you got the Joe Bear guy in the eight hole, 
uh, that hit, you know, close to 20 home runs last year. <laughs> right. uh, that's a lot to deal with. And, you know, when he steps in there, he's, he's a big dude. He's not just, a, you know, uh, a punch and Judy. So anyway, it's a daunting lineup. Um, and, and with, with number three, right smack dab in the middle of it. I mean, you're facing a big leaguer, every nine hitters, uh, at least one of them. Uh, it's yeah. just, it's a lot to deal with. No doubt, man. I hope y'all enjoyed that interview with my boy, Doug Thompson. Doug's a great guy. He knows a ton about baseball and he sees everything firsthand up in the booth for every LSU home game. So I really appreciate his time really quick. Let's get into the get right, stay right list. And how did I do? First off on the get right, I had Dylan Cruz. And I think that's a hit for me as he went three for seven with six walks, two hit by pitches. And Kentucky just never really let him get going except for game two, as they had a ton of respect for him. And you saw him get intentionally walked a couple times this weekend. Also on the get right, I had the bullpen. Well, nobody got hurt. So that's a plus. But the pin ERA, as I mentioned on the weekend, was not great. 7.50 by my calculations, although it could be a little bit off, but that's concerning. You had some some guys make appearances and their outings were up and down. Collins was a massive bright spot for me, but I'm going to call that a push for the bullpen on the get right list. In terms of stay right, I had Thompson. That was a hit. Now he goes three for 12. That's only 250, so it's not great, but he had six RBIs, three walks, four Ks. He came through with a grand slam and a couple of key two-out hits that scored runs in game three. So Thompson, continue to stay right, baby, as he just gets it done. Also on the stay right list, I had Gavin Guidry. I'm going to call this a push. In his one appearance on the weekend, Guidry in game three went one and two-thirds innings pitched with two hits, two runs, two earned, had some control problems. He did have three walks and two Ks. So it was a little bit of up and down for the freshman. That's to be expected. He's had so many good outings in a row. You figure there's going to be a little bit of a bump in the road, but that slider is still a wipeout pitch, and I'm still expecting Gavin Gidry to have good outings from here on out. Very quickly, as we wrap up here in the 60 feet, 6 inches LSU podcast, the SEC rundown, A&M takes two out of three at home from Mizzou. That's a hit for me. Arkansas sweeps the Vols. I completely missed that. As Tennessee is just absolutely floundering right now. Florida takes two out of three from Georgia. I had the Gators sweeping that, so I missed that one. Bama takes two out of three at home from Auburn. That's a hit for me. State takes two out of three at home from Ole Miss. I nailed that one as well. Then finally, Vanderbilt. I took the Commodores as they take two out of three at home from South Carolina. So that's going to do it for this week's review of the LSU versus Kentucky series. As always, thank you all for joining me. And a special shout out to my guy, Doug Thompson. I truly appreciate his insight and his time. Y'all make sure to follow Doug on Twitter as well. And I love the fact that he stopped by the podcast. Up next, LSU hosts ULL at the box on Tuesday night. And then they travel to Oxford to face the Ole Miss Rebels in a Friday, Saturday, Sunday SEC tilt. Be on the lookout for the Ole Miss preview episode dropping Wednesday. And as a reminder, subscribe to the YouTube channel so that you don't miss out on any of the content. The podcast is always available on Apple, Google, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcast content. And follow me on Twitter at 60FT6INLSUPod. So until next time, y'all stay safe. And as always, go Tigers.